0: we finally cleared chapter 5 in our red letter studies, that's what we're in right now, the specific teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ and if I may just review, not from last week's material, but just review the reason why we're doing this and the reason why there's a real need to have um, to have studies concerning the teachings of Jesus because they tend to get neglected by us we modern day New Testament believers we like to preach from it a lot, but a lot of times we don't really spend much time on his teachings because we get engrossed in other parts of the word and because studying Jesus' teachings requires uh, considerable extra work. It's not just opening up to the book of Jesus, as we said before. It's, it's opening up to you know four different gospel accounts and then digging down into the historical narrative of these gospel accounts and extracting his teachings and understanding them within their historical context, and understanding how they applied to us, because Jesus wasn't writing to the churches. The churches did not yet exist, because Jesus had not yet died. So if you were right with God at the time that Jesus was alive on the earth, it's because you were a faithful law-abiding, and I mean law of Moses-abiding Jew, probably in Israel. That's just how it was. This thing hadn't been turned loose on a global scale yet. And so you have to understand that when looking into the teachings that Jesus taught to the people that, that listened to Him and took it to heart. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump right into chapter 6. We finished chapter 5. I don't want to take any time reviewing that. Let's just go right into the new stuff here. Chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed, He says. Take heed that ye do not your alms, that's A-L-M-S, alms, before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Now, first of all, what's alms? That's a word we don't come across very often anymore. It's kind of old. The archaic meaning for that word is charity. But what it typically refers to is money given for the sake of the poor, the disadvantaged or those disfranchised or uh, down and out under the bridge. You know what I mean the guy standing outside the McDonald's up on Del Range who's looking for a handout. Well, alms would be money given to such a person as that. Alms would be money given to a charitable foundation ostensibly that uh, uses that money then to help the poor. But it applies to more than just this. So let's read this this whole paragraph, verses one through four, and then we'll dig into it a little bit. It's pretty self-explanatory. He says, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them, Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. They have their reward. Why? Because they're doing it for a show. They're trying to show people. They don't care about the poor. They just want to be seen and believed to care about the poor. Because that that's uh, in modern psychology circles, some modern psychology circles, it's referred to now as virtue signaling. Okay? Look, I'm signaling my virtue to everybody that can see me. Look, I'm paying my tithe now. It is huge, and I want you to know that I am putting it in the basket. Look, everybody. Religious virtue signaling is some of the grossest that's out there, okay? But it, it, while well, he's talking about alms, you can apply it to any sort, of, any sort of good deeds that are done. He's telling us, Jesus says here, Verily I say unto you, this is in the last part of verse 2, Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But, verse 3, when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. What's he saying? Do your good deeds, but don't make a show out of them. Do good things and let your Father in heaven be glorified, but don't sound a trumpet before you. Don't make a great fanfare, and a big virtue signaling thing, and fire off the fireworks, and who look at me, look what I'm doing. Because if you do that, okay, fine. You have your reward. You've been seen. Congratulations! You have no other reward of your Father which is in heaven. Now, I try to—I don't really try to um, overemphasize this because really the things that we do, the good deeds that we do, we ought to do for the sake of good. Okay. Now I'm not saying that to tear down or to uh, minimize the importance of the reward that our Father in Heaven offers us. And there is reward for well-doing, there really is. But the most virtuous kind of good deed is the good deed that's done simply because it's good. Simply because it's good. Now that said, not again, I'm not downplaying or minimizing the reward that we have from our Father, whatever that reward may be. Sometimes it's manifest in this life, sometimes it's gonna be something that we're not gonna really see come back to us until the life to come. Either way, that's fine that's fine the teaching here is don't make a show out of it or as the one man said in that old Raymond Chandler novel he said don't make a song out of it okay if you're going through a hard time endure it patiently but don't make a song out of it if you're going to do a good deed if you're going to do a good deed let your father in heaven get the glory don't make a song out of it as far as look how good and virtuous I am we understand the point I think we can move on now So all of these, these teachings that we're going to deal with tonight, these teachings of Jesus that we're going to deal with tonight, there's three of them here. We may get a little further than that, but there's at least three of them here deal with the subject of eye service, E-Y-E service, okay? Doing things with the motive to be seen by other people. And Jesus really puts it in perspective here. And And it was true before he taught it. But of course, when you hear something taught, it really kind of cements it into place. We're in Matthew chapter 6 tonight. Matthew chapter 6 verses 1 through whatever we get through. So verse 5, he moves on to the next lesson on eye service. The first one dealt with alms, which can apply to all good deeds, tithes, offerings, uh, giving money to the poor or to the disadvantaged or whatever the case may be, any kind of a good deed. The next one deals with, let's say, carnal faithless prayers. Beginning in verse 5. And when thou prayest, Jesus says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. There it is again. When you do something to be seen by other people, to try to impress them with how awesome and wonderful and spiritual you are, then that is that is your reward. You have been seen of them. He says they have their reward. Verse 6, But thou, thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. What? Yes, he says that. Enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret. And thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now let's stop there because there's a couple of different teachings in this paragraph on prayer. This is the first one. It's about being seen of men. All right, well, the first thing that comes to my mind, I don't know about you, but the first thing that comes to my mind is, well, what about prayer meetings in the church? What about prayer meetings in the church? He's not condemning public prayer. Let me be clear on this. Jesus is not condemning public prayer. There's two different things, the, the, two different aspects of this teaching, okay? There's the act itself, which can be good or bad. And then there's the motive behind the act. Are you following? Okay, and that's in all kinds of things that we do. There's always the action that itself, and then there's the motive from which the action springs forth. And that motive can either be pure or it can be impure. It can be pure, it can be impure. If it's a if it's a proud motive, if it's a look-at-me type of motive, if it's a see-how-awesome-and-spiritual-I-am type of motive, which was behind the prayers of many of the Pharisees and those in Jesus' time that stood out in the streets and stood up in the synagogues and made long, flowing, elaborate prayers. Well, the intent behind those prayers wasn't to actually connect and commune with God. The intent behind their prayers was to impress people with how they could pray. You hear that nowadays, well, not so much now because the King James is kind of a lot of people have embraced other translations, unfortunately. But you know, you hear when people try to pray in King James English, you know, O oh Father which art in heaven, blessed be thy name, O oh God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob oh god look down upon me a lowly worm you know and they get a little english accent in there you know when they've never been to england not one time in their life but you know somehow that lends a greater authority to your prayers right that's why villains in the movies always have english accents you ever notice that i'm thinking of grand moff tarkin from the original the original star wars 1977 circa 1977. This had better work, Vader. <laughs> yes. Authoritative. We try to when we try to sound impressive to other people. You know, there's nothing wrong with mainstreaming your English and your prayers. And I don't think any of us really here has any of us here particularly have that problem, but it is a problem some people have. It is a problem some people have. And some people, brand new in the faith, sometimes they, they think that in order for their, they're not trying to impress other people, they're trying to impress God. So they try to pray like King James English, you know, well, you know. well, whatever, I've already given our demonstration, we don't need to do that again. But it's the intent of the heart. It's the intent behind the prayers. Are we trying to impress other people or are we just trying to talk to God? Now you don't so mainstream your English that you slip into profanity, all right? Now there's a heart problem there. All right, if you've got that in your vocabulary, that's something that really needs to be purged out of your mouth, purged out of your heart. It's in your mouth because it's in your heart. You need, that needs to be purged completely out. It needs to, It's one of the first things that the Holy Ghost cleans up in a person's life when a person has received the Holy Ghost. But it's something that needs to be out of there. And why are we bringing this up? Because it's part of our continued growth as a Christian. Well, I've been a Christian 20 years and, you know, uh, I kind of let it back in. All right, well, then you get it back up. It's as simple as that. It can't come out of the mouth if it isn't in the heart. Okay? Because it's from the abundance of the heart. The Bible says that the mouth speaketh. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So these various sins of, of speech, which there's another teaching on another day, you know, whether it's lying, gossip, profanity, blasphemy, any of these different types of sins of sins of the tongue, you could call them. Okay? They really have no place in the life of a believer. There's sins that need to be repented of, put behind us, and moved on from. But here he says, you know, not, not making a big open show of our prayers. Because it's disingenuous, isn't it? It's disingenuous. When we pray, we want to connect with God. We want to commune with God. That's what real communion is. And it's, where we, der- it's the word we, where we derive the word for the, the communion rite or the communion ritual that the Christian, that Christian church is still practiced to this day, you know, to varying degrees and varying frequencies. It's about communing with our God, with our Lord and Savior. That's what it's about. So it's not about putting on a show. Even when we pray openly here in church, when we open a service or a Bible study or when we, um, for anything at all it's not about impressing people it's about the it's, a, the it's about the motive of the heart it's about connecting with god petitioning him for his aid for his grace for his favor for his mercy whatever the case may be so it boils down to the intent of the heart well then how then should we pray well what jesus admonishes us to do is to just he says enter into your closet. You, now, you can take that literally. There's nothing wrong with it. You can absolutely climb into your closet and do it. I've done it in the past. I used to have a nice walk-in closet in an apartment that I had down in Florida. And uh, there's a few times that I did that. Part of that was because I had a roommate at the time He was a fellow minister. But I just didn't really want to broadcast my prayers. I just wanted to be quiet and, and just whatever. So you can take it literally. You can take it... A little bit less literally and just take it to mean that he's saying, be private about it and your Father which sees in private will reward you openly. But again, he's not condemning public prayer. He is condemning public prayer that is prayed with the wrong motive. He's condemning it if it's prayed with the wrong motive. So, are we square? I think we've covered that. Let's move on to the next part. Still dealing with prayer. He says in verse 7, but when we pray, but when ye pray... Use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. Uh-oh, we're going to kick over a sacred cow or two tonight, but we're going to do so in love, okay? We don't do this out of meanness or cruelty or anything like that. He says, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. If I pray over and over and over and over and over, and over Again, the same line, the same word, then surely that will penetrate heaven and God will answer that prayer. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Okay? Well, anyway, I want to be careful with that. I don't want to be too overt. But it's not about... It's not about... He says vain repetitions, okay? What's the word vain mean? typically translates into futile. The word futile, and that's where we derive the word vanity... And yes, everything that that applies to also, oh yes, it's there. Come to the School of Virtue classes. We're gonna go there. It's gonna be good stuff, okay? But um, he says vain repetitions, so futile repetitions. He's not saying that there's repetitions that aren't futile. He's saying that repetitions in prayer are futile. Does not God have a good pair of ears? He hears us the first time. And that doesn't mean that it's wrong to pray for the same thing more than once. But you know what he's talking about? Oh God, please bless us! Oh God, please bless us! Oh God, please! Oh God, give me a Mercedes! 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 You're writing down hash marks. If I pray this 50 times, then surely He will hear and He will give me a Mercedes. Frankly, you can keep the Mercedes. Those things are expensive, and the upkeep on them—I think I heard a tune-up, just a tune-up on one of those things was like over 300 bucks. Higher? I'm getting an arrow back there saying it's even higher. But if you like them, have them. If you got the money, you don't even have to worry about the maintenance. And probably if you have one, you don't have to worry about the maintenance. Okay, that's one of those things like the man who was driving the motorhome and he was filling up the gas tank. And the fella at the other guy's tank was looking at his motorhome and saying, It's a nice motorhome you got there. How much does one of those cost to fill up? And the man who owned the motorhome said, Well, if you have to ask that question, you probably don't need a motorhome. Because they're not cheap. They are not cheap at all. Anyway, the point is avoid vain repetitions in your prayers. Because they're not going to be any more granted or less granted for their repetition. Because that's what the heathen do. That's what Jesus said. This is what the heathen do. What are they, who are the who are the heathen? Well the heathen, heathen and pagan are almost synonymous. They just have different root words that the names come from. Heathen derives from a word that simply means people of the heath country folk, okay? Same thing with Pagan. Pagani comes from the Latin Pagani. It means approximately the same thing. Country people, people that were outside of the large population centers, of outside of cities where all sophistication is, right? Whatever, okay. Well, and because communication didn't get to the rural areas as quickly as it did in the cities. It takes a lot especially in Jesus' time. No internet, no phones, no nothing. Not even, well, maybe smoke signals. I know the Romans used um, polished mirrors to flash lights, flash uh, light signals between outposts. And that was one of the things that helped them to spread and conquer and, and so on. But he says that the heathen do that. Why did, he, why did he refer to the heathen? Well, because Christianity had its quickest spread, like anything in cities where people are. Where people are more people are concentrated, and where the word can be spread more quickly, eventually it spread out. But out in the country, out in the rural areas, Christianity—well, Christianity didn't exist yet—but certainly, you know, um, the religion of the Jews had not spread out into the Gentile nations. So these kind of became synonymous. He says, "Don't pray like the heathen. Don't pray like those who think that they'll be heard for their much speaking." Verse eight: Be ye therefore. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Now you might be tempted to take that and say, well, then why even bother praying? Well, because there's lots of there's lots of teaching in the Word of God that makes it very clear. Prayer is your lifeline. Listen to me, I think we put this up on Facebook lately. Pr- prayer is the lifeline of the believer. And so important, so critical to the believer and to the whole church, so critical is prayer that the apostles told us, one apostle in specific said, pray without ceasing. I think that's one of these scriptures that we have over here. Is that this one? Yes, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God, of Christ. Jesus concerning you, and that's out of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. We didn't just put these up because they looked nice. In fact, we made them intentionally minimal so they didn't distract. But these are scripture references we have around here on these on these pillars. You ought to read them sometime. They'll do you some good. The ones up here by the altars both deal with prayer. He tells us to pray without ceasing. Now what's that mean? Does it mean we spend our we get up in the morning we start praying? And then we do that all day long. No, because they'll put you in a rubber room. Well, they stay used to. Now they'll just let you wander the streets with the rest of the methods. Okay? He's talking about that actually goes beyond our prescribed times that we might set aside to pray. It's good to do that. You ought to have a time of day that you set aside. Whether it's five minutes, half an hour, an hour, or ten minutes, or whatever. It doesn't matter how long. Okay, what matters is the quality of it. You ought to have a, a, a time set aside every day to to pray, is to push aside all distractions, stupid phones and, and computers and internet, Netflix and all that other junk that encroaches, or projects that you have that you're working on. And I'm not saying these things, things are bad, okay? But you ought to have a time that you push all these distractions aside and you focus for just a little bit on talking to God. It's about communion, but Praying without ceasing is next-level stuff because that goes beyond the prescribed time of day that you might have set aside. And it, that starts to enter into what's called a life of prayer. The one is your prayer life. I pray every day at noon. I pray every morning when I get up. Or I pray every night right before I go to bed. Whenever it is that you pray, okay? This goes over into what's called a life of prayer. And that is when you get up every day and you live your day, with the constant awareness of the presence of God. And you can, have, you can have a running dialogue with Him going all the time. It doesn't even involve you moving your lips. I'm telling you, that is the place to live. That is a very good place to live. Because in your, your cognitive, yeah, I'm not saying you sense it, okay? I'm not saying you, it's like the force, okay? You lift. Airplanes on the water or something like that. Why would airplanes be in the water? Well, they crashed. You know what I'm talking about. Okay? I'm not talking about that. I'm not trying to talk about Christian mysticism or any other kind of mysticism. Not that miracles are mysticism. They're not, they're miracles. But I'm talking about just being cognizant, being aware of God's presence. And that really doesn't have anything to do with your feelings. That doesn't have anything to do with your feelings. That has to do with faith and with certain knowledge that the word of God is true and that he said, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth, That he means exactly that. He means exactly that. And so that is a, that's, that's a place to strive to be in your, in your relationship with God, strive to be there in your relationship with God, where you're always aware of his presence and not to say that you'll always feel it again. So I'm not trying to set you up to feel disappointed either, but I'm saying You can be there if you want to be there. If you want to be there badly enough, you can be that aware of His presence and live like you are. And that requires practice. And prayer is very much a practice, isn't it? That's an example of what's called practical Christianity. The practice of Christianity. It's not just a belief system up here between our ears, but it is a practice. It's something we do because of what we believe. Do you see how that works? How the actions stem from the belief. You, and we've talked about this. If all you have is a belief system in your mind, if your Christianity is nothing but a belief system up here in your head, well then it's not a religion at all. It's a philosophy. That's all it is. A belief system without concomitant actions or resulting actions is a philosophy. Well, everybody has philosophy. philosophy. is a dime a dozen. I'm not knocking it, some of it's quite good. A lot of it's bad. Okay, but when that belief system, when your philosophy results in a a set of actions, well, that makes it real. That brings it into the real world, doesn't it? And that's what that's what you do and people see, though we don't do it to be seen of men. it, people see that and it cements it in reality and it shows it to them. They see you then as a light set upon a hill, a city set upon a hill. It's what we talked about uh, in chapter five, what Jesus was saying that no man lights a candle and sticks it under a bushel. You don't turn on a flashlight and shove it under your mattress. Makes for a poor night's sleep and you still can't see in the dark. So when you have a belief system and a result, a set of actions that result from that belief system, then what you have is what James describes pure religion and undefiled. You have the real deal. Not vain religion, not empty religion. You have real religion. Religion's not a bad word. I know it's a trigger word for a lot of Christians. They hear the word religion and they automatically think, oh, hypocrisy, hypocrisy. No, 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 no. Be religious, but let your religion be real. Do you see the difference? Don't be afraid of the word religion. Just let it be sincere. and Let it be in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus is talking about. All this stuff. Let it be real. Don't be a fake like the Pharisees. Don't be a fake like the heathen. Even if they weren't fake. A lot of heathen are sincere, but sincerely wrong. Okay? But let your prayers be real. So he says, Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Ask at this matter. And and again, not all prayer is asking. sorry I can't just get past that. Let's let's get back onto that verse. Not all prayer is asking. A lot of prayer is praise. A lot of prayer is thanks. It's thanksgiving and some of the best prayers you can ever pray. And I'm not saying it's wrong to ask for things. We're told in the Bible to make our petitions known to God, okay? Well, what's a petition? It's not a piece of paper for signatures. That's how it is in society. But when we petition someone for something, we're asking someone for something. So when we make our petitions known to God, then yes, we're we're laying out our requests and there's nothing wrong with that. We're told to do that. So please don't please don't misunderstand me. But Some of the best prayers prayed are prayers of just thanksgiving. And if you've never done that before, I I recommend that you try that. Go before God sometime and just say, God, Father," Father, I'm not asking for anything tonight. I'm not asking for anything at all. I just want to spend a few minutes and I want to tell you thank you for the things that you have given me. Thank you for every good thing that you have given me. That's a, that's a wonderful prayer to pray, especially if you mean it, you know, and it's not standing a lot, standing in, and shouting it in the streets or in the synagogues, although that actually wouldn't be too bad if it was sincere, okay? People seeing you give thanks. That's why I'm not, I'm not ashamed to pray over my food in a restaurant. Now, it's not a commandment. It doesn't command us to pray over our food. You haven't sinned if you forgot to pray before you ate your food, okay? It's usually just forgetfulness, but it's, and again, make sure your motives are pure, But don't be ashamed. Do you see how they all interconnect and how it all stacks? And and so let your practices be right practices, let them be good practices, but have a pure motive and a pure heart when you do it. Let's move on. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Let's actually, let's let's move away from the traditional rhythm of that and let's just read this the way that it's written, okay? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Oh man, we could have a whole series of studies on this prayer because you don't forgive people you don't forgive people that have done you wrong God will not forgive you let me just be very clear you don't forgive people who do you wrong don't expect forgiveness from the Lord he says forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors other renditions of that say forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us okay so it's not just about the guy who owes you money who hasn't paid you Okay, it's not just about that. Verse 13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, is this what's called the Lord's Prayer? Okay, verses 9 through, excuse me, verses, yes, verses 9 through 13. Is this a magical Harry Potter incantation? Is this something that the Lord commanded that we should pray word for word verbatim? Because it has some inherent power to it? Well, I prayed the Lord's Prayer five times today. Look how much faith I have. It doesn't work that way. Or is this simply a model for us Let's break it down and look at the contents. Now, we're, we're out of time, so we're going to wrap this up in just a moment. We didn't get through all of the, uh, we didn't get through all of the I-service teachings. We've got one more after this. But let's look at this. Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven. Okay, so we pray to God. We can pray to Him as a Father. We pray to God or we can pray to Him as our Father. He says, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. What is God to you? Is he the angry judge sitting on a throne up in heaven with a hammer in his hand waiting for you to do something wrong so he can smack you with it? That's Thor the last time I checked. Isn't he the guy with the hammer? We don't believe in him, by the way. Sorry. Just a reference point. No. he's Well, he is to some. And he will be. He will be judge. But to us who have believed upon his Son, Jesus Christ, and have accepted his sacrifice for our sins to us who stand fast in our confidence, God is our Father now, isn't he? I take that very seriously, I take that very literally. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay, so we're now addressing him as Father and acknowledging that his name is holy and is hallowed. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, that's our expression of his will. It's our expression, our assent. Not that he needs our assent, but I'm sure that he appreciates our assent. That's our assent to his will. His will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Us expressing that we want the same thing he wants, right? Father in heaven, our Father who art in heaven, you are holy. Let your will come, let your kingdom come, and let let your will be accomplished in earth as it is accomplished in heaven. And then there is the petition. Give us this day our daily bread. In other words, Give us what we need to live. Give us what we need to live, and it's not a demand; it's a petition. There's a difference. There's a difference. The, the difference is in the attitude. It's in the approach. Okay. And, well, anyway, there's more could be taught on that. Maybe we'll when we get to the book of Malachi, then we'll talk about that because that comes up. But it says, "Forgive us our, or, uh, Here's our petitions. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. So, in other words, Father in heaven, sustain us. Give us what we need to sustain us, please. And forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, forgive us our trespasses, just like we forgive others. Because didn't Jesus say, we haven't gotten to it yet, have we? No, we haven't gotten to it yet. The golden rule, do so unto others, that's the modern rendition, do unto others, as you'd have them do unto you. Jesus phrases it a little bit differently, but it's the same teaching. Okay, well, God forgive us as we forgive others. Hey, he said it. He said it. And that should be good incentive. I mean, love ought to be the main incentive, but that should be good incentive for us to forgive people that have done us wrong. And it happens all the time. It happens all the time. And sometimes the people that you strive the hardest to help the most are the ones that will burn you the worst. It's a fact of life. When it happens to you, don't think it's strange. Don't think it's strange. It's a common thing. Sometimes the people that you do the most to help are the ones who turn around and put a knife right in your back, figuratively speaking. If they're on something, they might do it literally too, but you know what I'm saying. But we have to be forgiving. We have to be forgiving. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation. Well, we know that God doesn't do that anyway. We know that God does not lead people into... He doesn't tempt any man with evil. He might tempt us with good, and He presents us opportunities to make a good choice and a right choice, okay? But He never leads us into temptation to sin. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a perfectly worthy prayer. Very simple, very worthy. For thine is the kingdom, we're now acknowledging His sovereignty, and the power, we're acknowledging His power, and the glory because it is his glory it's not us it's never ours it's never our glory you ever been amazed by a beautiful full moon at night i have been i think we just had a super some kind of super moon thing on the 31st of january did anybody see it wasn't it overcast that morning anyway we were going to get up early and then we forgot and we overslept and then it was cloudy anyway so we didn't feel bad but why are you bringing up the moon well what are you seeing You're seeing the light that is reflected from the sun. It's the sun that has all the light, but it bounces off that moon. And then we get to see, and it makes the moon pretty glorious, doesn't it? But it's not the moon's glory. It's the sun's glory. It's the same thing with us. It's the same thing with us. Live for God. Love God. Serve God. Do good because God has made you born again. Okay, and then they people will see that, but it's not your glory. It's not our glory. God doesn't share His glory like that. It is God's glory. It is His glory simply reflecting off of us. That's all it is. And when you remember that, that'll help guard your heart against some of the worst of sins. One of the worst sins: pride, pride, pride. That was that came up in the, in the morning Bible study uh, earlier today. We were teaching in Romans came up again about not thinking of ourselves. Paul says, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. So it's teaching an admonition to humility. Humility. You remember, any good that's in my life is because of God. Any good that's in me is because of God and because of what God did for me. Then it helps us to remember and not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. It doesn't mean you think terribly of yourself. It just means you think honestly of yourself. Keep it in proportion. Humility is a a whole different teaching too. It's one that I love talking about. And it's so much easier to just be humble and stay humble than it is to get humbled. That's painful, trust me. So just stay humble. Just stay humble. For thine is the kingdom and power and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's wrap this up really quick. Let's wrap up this paragraph and then we'll end. two more verses. For if ye forgive men their trespasses your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So there's the corollary right there. There's the support for what we were talking about. For if you forgive men their trespasses, men, women, whomever, their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So there's our our incentive there to forgive others. Plus it's right and it's good. It shows a godly heart when we're willing to overlook and we're willing to uh, move on from past transgressions. One last thing before we close. Recently, talking, I was really talking to a man in some fairly serious marital distress. There's nobody that anyone here knows. It's no one who even lives in this state. But I was talking with him about it and brought up one of the roots of the problems that he and his wife are having is some past transgressions on his part. Okay, He'd gotten into porn about six years back. But then it's, well, you just said the P word. I did. Get that out of your life. It's in your life. It has no place in your life. That stuff is like heroin. The only difference is the delivery method to the brain. And yes, by the way, it's a sin. It's adultery. We'll teach on that another time. But he had gotten into that about uh, six or seven years ago. But then he had gotten out. He had repented of it. And he had turned his back on it. That's what repent means, to turn your back on something and walk away from it. He had repented of it, and he'd gotten it out of his life. And he'd never gone back to it again. But now six or seven years later, his wife's involved in something not that, but something that's of the same spirit. And now keeps bringing up his past because she's not interested in his present innocence. She's only interested in his past guilt. And that happens sometimes in marriages, you know, when when old injuries come up and you're having a real good rip, roar, and argument with your spouse. And if you've ever been married, you know what I'm talking about. Don't lie to me and tell me that you don't. Okay? When you've ever had a really good argument with your spouse, okay? And then all the past starts coming up. Whoa, Doc, hold on. If a person repents of their sin, especially if you say you have forgiven them. You forego all, you forfeit all rights to ever bring it up again as, as something to hit them over the head with. You see what I'm saying? To forgive means to forgive. Now you may not forget, and I'm not saying that you even have to forget, but you cannot hold a grudge because a grudge is the absence of forgiveness. If there's a grudge, you have not forgiven Say it again. If there's a grudge, then you have not forgiven. It's still in your heart, and it has either become or is becoming a root of bitterness that the Bible talks about. I think it's James. It talks about a root of bitterness. And that what does a root do? It spreads. And then it bears fruit. It's not good fruit. It's not good fruit. So Jesus, our Lord and Savior, tells us, If you forgive men their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, Topical studies on biblical doctrines and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org. Backslash Cheyenne Giving.